Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, following the truth wherever it leads, exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites, revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality, coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. explore some rock and roll mysteries and uh, the rock and roll detective is here Jim Birkenstad has spent a lifetime researching writing and consulting in pop music history his books on the unreleased recordings of the Beatles black market Beatles and the making of Nirvana's seminal album Nevermind are critically acclaimed Jim has served as a consultant to the Beatles, Apple Corps, George Harrison, the Traveling Wilburys, the band Garbage, and many international record labels. He's currently the co-star of two pop culture TV series on the Reels channel, Celebrity Legacies and Celebrity Damage Control. As founder of Rock and Roll Detective, Jim's firm offers a number of specialized and confidential services to music artists, record labels, music download sites, TV and film production, auction houses, and museums. His other books include Nevermind Nirvana, The Beatle Who Vanished, and his latest, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. Jim, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm great, Richard. Thanks very much for having me on. This is a real pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. I don't need to tell you, you probably have the coolest job on the planet. How did you get into this? <laughs> I have been told that. Uh, I think that I just, you know, while kids were in the 60s and 70s, they were collecting baseball cards and, and uh, memorizing all the the little statistics on the back of the cards. I was collecting records from 1964 on, and I wanted to know who produced it, who played what instrument, you know, and, and there wasn't much information on it at the start, but over time, people started to write fanzines, word of mouth, or someone knew someone who was at a session and you'd get more detail. So I just became very passionate uh, first about the Beatles, and then and then from there wanting to know who were the people that influenced the Beatles, which musicians, and then who are these other uh, classic rock artists that came, you know, both during the Beatles' time and after. So uh, it, it was just a passion that continued, even though I had to go to school, I had to become a lawyer, etc. I never forgot that passion. So. I think that the first step really was writing a book, which was Black Market Beatles, the story behind their lost recordings. And that was, of course, from a lifelong time collecting all of these unreleased recordings by the Beatles, which, you know, now the Beatles themselves have released much of this. But at the time, uh, they had not started to do that. And in fact, my book was brought to their attention while they were working on the Beatles anthology and things sort of uh, proceeded from there. I, I actually first worked for George Harrison in the late 90s and then uh, he recommended me to the Beatles to start doing uh, historical consulting to them as well. I've got to ask you about working with George, the so-called quiet Beatle who uh, you know, famously was said, you know, he didn't suffer fools lightly. What was he like? He was super friendly, uh, very down to earth, but very funny. He was anything but quiet, but he was he was just very funny, um, had a real sense of humor about things. Even even, you know, when we think about all the crazy things going on in, the, in our world today, 
you know, there were crazy things going on then. And, and he would, you know, he would take those seriously, but he also could turn them into humorous uh, events as well. But really a great person. I can't say enough about the whole Harrison family. Olivia Harrison is wonderful. Uh, their son, Danny, is, a, is really a, a great young man and has done a lot of things on his own. And, and now he's starting to work on uh, spreading the legacy of George Harrison as well, working on, on uh, posthumous projects. Would it be fair to, to call George the reluctant Beatle, the reluctant rock star? It seems to me he was more interested in, I don't know, Hoagie Carmichael and, and playing his ukulele. Right, right. He loved the ukulele. Um, yeah, I don't think that he really set out so much to be a rock star as he set out to be a musician. And then, you know, after all the fame and fortune started to come through in the, uh, you know, in the 60s, that's when I think he started to search for, you know, what is life, which is one of his songs. And, you know, what is the meaning of all this? Why are we here? What are we doing? And how can we be better people? And, and how can we find, you know, inner happiness? And so that's when he started a, a really interesting spiritual journey. And, and it started to be reflected in his music as well. Uh, going back to your earlier book, Black Market Beatles, uh, how many, how many unreleased, and I'm including, you know, on bootlegs and so forth, how many unreleased songs remain hidden in the vault, do you think? That, that you mean have not surfaced today? Correct. Yeah, well, you know, the Beatles have now culled through them for uh, a White Album box set, a Sgt. Pepper box set, uh, a recent Let It Be box set, and I, I assume they'll do more of that. Um, there's always going to be literally thousands of more tracks that, that will probably never see the light of day, but, but people should understand the definition here. Unreleased could mean take 64 of a song out of 80 takes, and that it's a song that you've heard on the radio. It's a song you have on your album. Uh, it's just a slightly different version, or it might even be only a six-second breakdown. Someone hits a bum note, and they're like, "All right, take 68." So there, you know, there are a lot of those. So I guess you need to break it down. And and the way I would do it is there are there are unreleased demos that the Beatles would do at home, working on songs that they would later want to bring into the studio. I think there's quite a few of those still out there that could be turned into a project, uh, whether they choose to make it part of a box set around an album theme, or what I think would be kind of cool would be just an entire three or four CD set of all the, all the acoustic demos that John, Paul, and George did over the years at home. So you have demos, then you have outtakes, which are songs that get left off of albums. And I think all of those, um, I believe all of those have been put onto some of these posthumous projects like the anthology. Um, and then you have alternate takes. And then sometimes you can get really in the weeds with, uh, you know, different mixes, a mono mix, a stereo mix. So, you know, there's thousands of tracks and many of which we don't really need to listen to because number one, we have the very best final results of their work 
with George Martin, their producer, uh, and then the tracks that they've chosen to share with us uh, in these recent box sets over the last decade or so. Jim Bergenstadt is the rock and roll detective and his latest is Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. Just sticking with the Beatles for a, a moment yet and that, uh, that, that legendary story about the Beatles quietly coming together in, in 1976, recording an album, not being happy with it, it was never released. How did that get started and are there any kernels of truth to that? Uh, it, I think it got started by an auction house that claimed that they had uh, this master reel from this quiet, secret, alleged reunion session. And that the tape, unfortunately, had been completely erased. And they were trying to auction off a blank tape with the story. Now, at the time, I was pretty fascinated by that. And, and it, I became aware of it once the auction was going to happen, I think, in the 90s. And so I took the opportunity to, it said as part of the uh, sales pitch that uh, George Martin and uh, Jeff Emmerich, the engineer, were involved in it as well. So I took, a, I took the approach, all right, I'm gonna see who I can talk to. I talked to Jeff Emmerich and he said, never happened. It absolutely, the four of them with instruments were never in the room together in the same country in 1976. So then I, I went there. There is a book that plots out uh, every single date the Beatles did something anywhere uh, after they broke up, like a day-by-day -day diary solo activities. And at the time, not all of the Beatles were even in the United States at the same time that this, uh, you know, the, the month and year of 76 uh, was listed on this auction. And I found out that George Harrison was in London, uh, not London, but in his, in his home in England. Um, uh, Paul McCartney was on tour with Wings. Ringo was in LA and John Lennon might've been in LA. So, you know, the whole thing falls apart when you start to look at, well, what are the facts and where were these people? Was it even physically possible for them to have all been in LA at the time? And if so, <clears throat> at that time, people were documenting every little move, every new haircut, everything about the Beatles, even after they broke up in the seventies. So <clears throat> if they had all, excuse me, if they had all been there, at the same time, uh, it would have been documented that they were at least in the city at that time, and, and they just weren't. Um, May Pang told, <clears throat> tells the story of, I'm, I'm not sure about the timing of this, well, when they were together, obviously, before he moved back to the Dakota with, with Yoko, uh, <laughs> that um, John was thinking about going down to Kansas City to hook up with Paul. Paul McCartney, I guess, was on tour was in mm -hmm. Kansas City and had invited John to, to go down and meet and, and who knows, maybe even try working together again. And at the yeah. last minute, Yoko Ono kind of scotched that plan. Any, have you heard about that? Is there any truth to that rumor? I had heard that it was uh, New Orleans because Paul was, was recording um, one of his solo records down in New Orleans and he, 
he had some of the local musicians working on those sessions. And I believe he did have some discussions with John about coming down, but I think we'd have to ask John and we'd have to ask Yoko and May and, and get all three perspectives and then try to sift through those and see what we think the truth is. Because unfortunately, history is very fluid. And, and that's why when you are investigating something like that, a story like that, or the stories that I uh, have in the book, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, you really have to look at the credibility of each person. You have to, what are the motives of that person? Do they have an interest in the outcome of telling you the story a certain way? Or do, are they completely unbiased and they just happen to be witnesses and said, this is what I saw? So it, sometimes it's not possible to solve questions like that. Uh, unless we can go right to the people who were all involved in it. Uh, I think Paul might be the one to ask that question. He, um, he might be able to say, yeah, we were planning to do it. And maybe he would say, Yoko scotched that or, or John sort of got cold feet or it didn't work out with his schedule. But, you know, I don't know that we'll ever know. But they did, they did get together and jam uh, in L.A., for the last time, and it was it was one of these. Uh, Jim Keltner would have different musicians over. It was called the Jim Keltner Fan Club, and he would have them over to a studio on Sundays. And it was some of the greatest people in rock and roll. Every different every every Sunday was a different group of people. But one Sunday, uh, there was Paul McCartney on drums and uh, John Lennon on guitar, Stevie Wonder on keyboard, and Harry Nilsson, I think, uh, singing back up, and there may have been one other. Keltner said that he was actually in the control room. That one's been bootlegged, in fact, so it, it, you know, you can actually hear their voices chatting, you can hear them singing, um, and so they did exactly have at least that we do know they had at least that one jam session together. Jim Bergenstadt is the rock and roll detective and his latest is mysteries in the music case closed. So let's uh, dive into the latest book and, and uh, this whole discussion about, you know, the Beatles and did they secretly get back together and so forth leads us into uh, one of the chapters in um, mysteries in the music. And that is the masked marauders Supergroup or masquerade. Tell me about uh, this, this band that supposedly formed in 1969 and some of the, uh, the luminaries who were supposedly in this band. Right. Well, you know, just as a little background to give people, you know, who are younger, a little background on the times. This was uh, 1969 and there were a lot of weird vibes swirling around the counterculture at the close of the decade. Uh, one of the events was that the Rolling Stones played a free concert at the Altamont racetrack in California, and, and there was a murder that took place right in front of the stage. Uh, Hell's Angels stabbed a, a, a fan, um, you know, while the Stones continued to sing. And, and then you had Charles Manson with uh, the Helter Skelter murders that brought terror to entertainers in, in California at the time, and he had a cult. 
And you had this Paul is dead rumor going on in the fall of 1969 about whether or not Paul McCartney had died and all these clues that were on the covers and people were playing their records backwards. And so there was a lot and of strange- ruining their needles. <laughs> yeah, that's right, ruining their, their little record needles, uh, as I did. Um, but at the same time, 1969 was a really interesting period because uh, members of different rock bands wanted to begin collaborating and jamming together uh, just to kind of break out of their usual mold. And the term supergroup came into the vernacular at that time, and it gave birth to folk rockers such as Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, as well as uh, Blind Faith, which uh, had Eric Clapton, who had come from The Cream, and uh, Stevie Winwood, who had come from Traffic. Um, so that was kind of a very interesting thing to us rock fans to hear or even hear about fans uh, jamming with each other, or bands jamming with each other where they were mixing up the players. Uh, for some reason, that seemed really cool to all of us kids at the time. So suddenly, uh, a Rolling Stone magazine put out a review in their record review column about a band called the Masked Marauders, made up of Bob Dylan, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones, members of those groups. And this was in a pre-viral world word of mouth time. We didn't have the internet or cell phones or texting or anything. It was, it was as I tell my kids, I grew up in, in, in the old days of the covered wagon on the Oregon Trail when it came to technology. So, but, but still, we kids were going to school and talking about this stuff. And the DJs on the radios were we're saying, hey, did you read this review in Rolling Stone? And it says that the Beatles and the Stones and Dylan have gotten together. So that was just mind blowing that the three sort of biggest artists of that moment in time had decided to work together according to Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone was really the, the only true authority on rock news at the time. There were a few other fanzines, but they were sort of the king of rock rock fanzines. So I wanted to know, you know, was this album ever really conceived of? What did this idea come from an origin in truth or was it merely just a fun hoax? And uh, if the album was a hoax, I wondered, did any of the principal artists participate in this hoax? And, um, you know, was it, was it a myth based in reality or what was it? And, you know, it, it turns out that the uh, review itself was just sort of a satirical hoax, a joke when I interviewed Jan Wenner, but I found that there was much more to the story as well. All right. And um, that was the, the brainchild was a Greel Marcus at Rolling Stone. Yeah. yeah. And he used the name TM Christian, uh, which, stood for The Magic Christian, which was a popular movie at the time. With Peter Sellers and Ringo Starr. Yeah, that's right. Jim Birkenstadt is the rock and roll detective, and his latest is Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. We're just about ready to roll into a break here. Jim, how do we get a copy of the book? Uh, people can 
order it at amazon.com, barnesandnoble.com. You can order it from your bookstore. And if you want a personally signed copy, you can get it at uh, Mysteries in the, no, that's not it, www.musicmysterybook.com, musicmysterybook.com. And uh, signed copies are, are available there. I would imagine that this is um, this would be a favorite among musicians because you know there are, as you say, there are there are uh, books out there and and legends and podcasts uh, that are designed for clickbait. Uh, but you you approach this more as a as a, a serious journalist. And so, are you getting a lot of positive feedback from actual you know rock musicians who say, "Yeah, you got the story right. That's how it happened." Yes, um, I've heard from uh, Jim Keltner, who really liked it, Alex Orbison, the son of Roy Orbison, who of course was around when the Traveling Wilburys uh, were around. Um, who else? Um, Chris France, who is the drummer for Talking Heads and the Tom Tom Club, he loved it. Uh, there's also a singer from the band a heavy metal band, I think it's called, I think it was Poison, I'm not sure, but um, I, I got word that he enjoyed it. So I'm, I'm starting to hear from musicians who uh, really love the book and, and in fact say, hey, I thought I knew everything about this chapter or this topic, uh, but I guess I didn't. Fantastic. We'll take a quick time. I'll come back. Jim Birkenstadt, the rock and roll detective. More in a moment. Stay with us. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Guys, we've seen so many people making ridiculous money from crypto. But did you know it's easy for you to do the same? The Copy My Crypto membership site shows you the coins that the YouTuber James McMahon personally holds and allows you to copy him. It's like having a big brother who knows what he's doing. You don't need to know a thing about crypto or how to invest as you simply do what he does. So let me tell you more about James. He runs the Crypto with James YouTube channel, which despite heavy censorship, has over 17,000 subscribers and 1 million views. Since March 2020, he's told his viewers to buy 26 crypto coins. Had you put in $100 into each one, it would now be worth over $53,000. Of the 26 coins, his top pick of the year, a coin called Phantom, is currently up over 440 times from when he said to buy. That one call alone has retired a number of people, including guys in their 20s and 30s. Remember, this is public knowledge. 
you can go to YouTube and verify this for yourself. So if you'd like to join the 1,300 members who copy James, then stop what you're doing and head over to copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. Copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. That's D-O-L-L-A-R. You'll not only find proof of everything I've said, but listeners get full access for just one dollar. You can't find this offer anywhere else, but act fast because the offer ends soon. That's copymycrypto.com forward slash dollar. That's D-O-L-L-A-R. Don't take this offer lightly. He's the real deal. Go visit the site now. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Jim Birkenstadt stays with us, the rock and roll detective, and the latest is Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. And uh, we were talking about the Beatles, whether or not they uh, they got together again in 1976. Uh, that led us into a discussion of the uh, Masked Marauders, which is uh, which was a hoax perpetrated by Rolling Stone magazine. And again, you can find uh, these stories in Mysteries in the Music. Speaking of which... There's also a story, and this I don't believe is in the book, but uh, when Brian Jones was sort of unceremoniously kicked out of uh, the Rolling Stones, I think he put on kind of a brave face. He says, no, I'll be fine. I'm, I'm, I'm going to start a super group. Was there any truth to that? I mean, or was he just basically, again, trying to put on a brave face? Was he thinking about getting together with, I don't know, Hendrix or, or Eric Clapton? I believe so. You know, from everything that I recall uh, from reading uh, his interviews from you know, reading many of the books that have been written about all those people. Brian Jones was really into experimenting. He liked to play different instruments, learn different instruments. He was friends with Hendrix. He was friends with Clapton. He was very good friends with John Lennon. And they were all sort of talking about those things at the time. So I know there was, uh, for example, I saw a letter once uh, at an auction where I think it was Jimi Hendrix sent a telegram or a letter to Paul McCartney suggesting that he was going to do this session with a lot of different players and wondered if Paul wanted to come and play bass. So there was a lot of that talk back then. So I, I don't think it was just um, putting on a brave face. I think that Brian Jones really did uh, believe that he would uh, get together with some of his uh, peers in the music industry and form a new band. All right. So um, you mentioned working with uh, George Harrison and also Roy, Roy Orbison's uh, son uh, on a project. I believe the um, uh, which now which book was made into a movie with Roy Orbison's son. So uh, Roy Orbison's son Alex and Ashley Hamilton, the son of George Hamilton and the stepson of Rod Stewart, former son. <laughs> uh, they optioned my book, The Beetle Who Vanished, which is the story of Jimmy Nickel, who was a then unknown drummer in the 60s when Ringo Starr had to go into the hospital the night before the Beatles' first ever world tour was about to start. And back then there were no out clauses in contracts, there was no insurance, there was just the show must go on. And so uh, the Beatles were forced to locate a substitute drummer. And that drummer uh, was the third person they called. The first two turned them down. And the third drummer was Jimmy Nickel. And he was, he was well known um, for having played with Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. And he was a very well-respected studio drummer. 
And they absolutely picked the right guy because earlier that year, just by coincidence, uh, I discovered that Jimmy Nickel had recorded a cover version of all the Beatles songs that they were currently playing at the time, which ended up being the Beatles set list for their concerts. And so when they hired, when they brought him to Abbey Road just to see how he played, he knew all of Ringo's parts. It was just, um, you know, the stars aligned for the Beatles to find this guy. So it's a story of how he got to be in that position, what it was like uh, on the uh, tour with the Beatles. And then what do you do with the rest of your life when you're 25 and you've been to the top of the entertainment world and now you're back to being on your own, you know, how do you deal with that? And so uh, uh, Ashley Hamilton and Alex Orbison optioned the rights and it's being turned into a film in London uh, by ECOS Films. Will it be a docudrama or? No, it'll just be a straight on, you know, rock bio motion picture. Wow, exciting, exciting. Who incidentally were the other two drummers that turned them down, do we know? Oh boy. I'm guessing it wasn't Pete Best. I guess they, that bridge no, they was burned, both, right? <laughs> uh, they were both, uh, one drummer was one who owned his own sort of nightclub and had his own band and he didn't want to desert the band. The other one, I can't remember his name either uh, off the top of my head, but he, he was a very well-respected uh, studio drummer who had, I think, worked with the Kinks and other bands. Back then, they'd let the drummer in the band be on tour, but when they went in to record, they'd oftentimes substitute for a drummer who could actually keep time. And so this guy was told, you know, if you leave for two weeks, you're gonna go from being the first person we call in those sessions to the bottom of the list. And these guys were making three times the money of the average uh, British factory worker in those days. And it was, great money for not a lot of hours. So uh, that person turned it down as well, uh, not wanting to upset the apple cart. To the uninitiated, you know, they may not be able to tell the difference between Ringo's drumming and Jimmy Nickel, but because Ringo was, I mean, his dominant hand was his left hand, right? So there was that, that style that he had that was was necessary because he was he was left-handed. When you hear Jimmy Nickel drumming for the Beatles versus Ringo Starr, can you tell the difference? Oh, absolutely. Well, first of all, uh, Jimmy knew the patterns of Ringo for those songs, but he didn't really know all of the fills for those songs. So one of the differences, and, and one of the things is about Ringo being a left-handed drummer, his fills are very unique sounding and Ringo really uh, plays more with his wrists. He's not a, a power drummer by any means, but Jimmy Nickel would uh, scoot up his drum seat and really come down hard on the drums and played a much louder, more powerful sound. And also one of the funniest things, he was used to uh, playing in big bands and, and things all the way back into the late 50s. So one of the things they would do is the drummer would be the last person playing when the song would end, they'd play some sort of a flourish just to help 
get the audience more uh, clapping more and applauding more. And Jimmy actually did this. There's a picture in my book, The Beatle Who Vanished, where they're in Australia and all three of the Beatles, John, Paul and George, are doing their famous bow after the song ends. And you can see Jimmy is still banging away on the drums, whereas Ringo would always finish at the same time and he would bow uh, on the drum kit, just like the other Beatles, and they all were in sync together. So uh, another little thing where Jimmy was a little more of a flourishing drummer and wanted to show off his abilities. Ringo, to me, was, a, was really a musician because he played to the song. He wanted to, he was a team player who wanted to benefit the music, and, and that's how he played his drums. How did Jimmy? How did how did the Beatles and and Jimmy Nickel get on? Was he considered kind of an outsider, or did they welcome him into well, the band for the tour? Yeah, to their credit, I feel the Beatles did welcome uh, Jimmy into the band because I spoke with people who were on the plane during the tours, who were in some of the warm up bands on the tours, and asked them those questions, in, including uh, one one or two who were actually drummers in other bands. Uh, and they said that the Beatles really made an effort to um, befriend Jimmy and, and bring him into the fold, bring him into the conversations. Uh, they never sort of shunned him away. And in fact, Tony Sheridan, who uh, Jimmy Nickel had actually played with Tony Sheridan in London before the Beatles ever met Tony Sheridan in Hamburg and before they ever played with him or recorded with him. Jimmy knew him first. So when they were on their flight, the Beatles and Jimmy Nickel were on their flight to Hong Kong, which was a very, very long flight that involved stopping in several countries for refueling back then. Uh, it turns out Tony Sheridan was on that flight. And I discussed it because I interviewed Tony before he passed on. And he said, yeah, they, the, the uh, flight attendant called me up front and I was surprised to find the Beatles there. And I was surprised to find Jimmy Nickel there, who we went way back. And so I think when the Beatles realized, oh, he played with Tony Sheridan, we played with Tony Sheridan. I think that was a moment when all of the uh, any sort of reservations went out the window and the Beatles really understood him as a serious musician. And uh, and they all got along really well at that time for that long flight. And that just continued as the uh, tour went on. Great story, Jim. We're gonna take another time out. Back with more of my conversation with the rock and roll detective mysteries in the music case closed right after these. We are back with the rock and roll detective, Jim Birkenstadt. The latest is mysteries in the music case closed. Once again, Jim, how do we get a copy? Well, you can get copies at my author site, which is www.musicmysterybook.com. Uh, musicmysterybook.com. You can get either signed copies there or there's a link to Amazon uh, right to the book page. Amazon covers it, uh, barnesandnoble.com, uh, Walmart. It's in bookstores uh, or if it's not, your bookstore can order it. We've been talking about some of the legends surrounding the Beatles, some of the mysteries, supergroups, one of the great supergroups of all time, of course, the Traveling Wilburys. How did they come together? Well, that was kind of a happy, lucky sort of thing. Uh, George Harrison and Jeff Lynne were working on an album together. 
And uh, it was George's uh, Cloud Nine album. Great album. And uh, Bob Dylan happened to be touring with Tom Petty at the time. And so Jeff and George went to see the show and hung out with them backstage. And uh, I think that might have been the first time that Tom Petty had met George or Jeff Lynn. Uh, Bob Dylan knew them both. And so um, they started chatting. And then uh, I think that the idea kept sort of percolating while Jeff Lynn and George Harrison were working on this album together. You know, it'd be kind of fun to have a, a rock band. And, and I think also uh, going back to one of your earlier points that, that George didn't really want to, he wasn't the rock star, superstar type. He liked just being in a band with friends and making music. And so the idea of the Traveling Wilburys really appealed to him. And so uh, they kept talking about it and they came up with a, the term uh, Trembling Wilburys at first and it, it changed over time to Traveling Wilburys. But then when they, when they moved to LA to do some post-album work, they... Uh, went out to dinner. Yeah, Jeff Lynn and George Harrison went out to dinner with Roy Orbison because Jeff was going to be producing Roy Orbison's next solo album. And the three got on and, and George said, oh, I need to do this uh, B-side or an extended mix or something where back then you had to do all these extra tracks for an album to help market it. And uh, Jeff said, well, I don't think we can do that tomorrow, George, because you can't just walk into a studio. You know, <laughs> they're booked out months ahead. And and George said, well, we'll just call Bob Dylan. He's got one in his garage, so we'll try. And they called Bob Dylan. And, and Bob Dylan, who was always touring like 360 days out of every year, happened to be home. <laughs> and uh, so they said, hey, can we come over? I have to work on, a, I have to come up with a new B-side type song. And then George had loaned a guitar to Tom Petty. Roy Arbison said, well, hey, can I tag along with you guys and tomorrow? And, and of course they said, yes. So you already have George, uh, Roy and Jeff Lynn on board. You're going to Bob Dylan's house. You're going to Tom Petty's to pick up a guitar. And when uh, George went to pick up the guitar at Tom Petty's house, George mentioned that he was going to work on a B-side over at Bob Dylan's house. And Tom said, oh, good. I was wondering what I was going to do today. So Tom invites himself along. Next thing you know, you got all five of the Wilburys sitting in a garage. And they say, well, George, what are you going to call us? And he looks around and there's a box, like a guitar box, you know, a UPS type box that would hold a guitar in Bob's garage. And it says handle with care. And George says, I'm going to call it handle with care. <laughs> so they just started, you know, he just started asking them to add some words and things. And then he thought, well, I got all these people here. We might as well all, you know, do this song together. So they did, they recorded handle with care there. And when he took it to the, uh, record executives at his label and said here's my b-side and they heard you know each one of these guys have distinctive voices and heard 
Jeff Lynn and Bob Dylan and Roy Orbison and Tom Petty singing along, along with George Harrison. They're like, wait, what is this? And uh, that's kind of when they said, oh, well, why don't you go back and turn this into a group? You know, and this is too good to just be some B-side in Germany. And so that's kind of how they were born, the short story of it. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Synchronicity. Yeah. All the stars aligned. Uh, and we all benefited, of course. But then how did Jim Keltner come in? Because he was the drummer. Well, Jim had played a, a lot with George Harrison on his solo records, and they were very good friends. And uh, they, you know, thought of him first when they needed a drummer for the Traveling Wilburys. Let's see, where do we want to go next? Oh, we, we've got about 10 minutes here. I want, to, uh, I want to talk about, we talked about the Masked Marauders. Let's talk about another masked uh, musician. Um, the uh, the masked marvel. Tell me about the masked marvel. Well, I was fascinated by this guy. He he's considered the king of the Delta blues, and he had started out, you know, working the fields. He was a young black man. This was in the 1920s, but he just felt like he didn't want to be a sharecropper. He didn't want to do what everyone else in his race was sort of destined to do. And he, he wanted to travel, he wanted to see places and he learned guitar and, and started to travel around the Delta and play a lot of uh, these small, they were sort of like shacks in those days where there'd be some food and drink and then a stage. And he also played at, his, at the farm there, Dockery Farms. And one day, and this is another interesting thing, not many black men at that time could write letters, you know, or, or even read and write. They just hadn't taken the time to do that. But this guy, he really had. And so he wrote a letter uh, to a guy named Mr. Spear, uh, who was a record store owner, but he was also a, um, a talent scout on the lookout for new musicians for uh, at least one label, Paramount Records, which was uh, up in Wisconsin at the time. They had started out as a, uh, like a rocking chair company. Then they started making uh, cabinets for Thomas Edison's uh, record players. And then they said, hey, we should, we should get in the business of making records and sell records with the cabinet and all of that so they got into it and so henry spear uh went over to dockery farms met this guy and and uh said hey you know play some songs for me and after about an hour he said yeah i think this guy's got potential had him over to the uh record store where he had a studio upstairs recorded him some demos sent him off to paramount and then paramount said yeah let's let's have him come up north and and record for us. But what's interesting was at the time, music was very segmented. And so uh, this artist, this blues artist, could sing different styles of music. He, he could sing blues, he could sing rhythm and blues, but also he was into gospel music because he had come from a religious background. But from a marketing standpoint at the time, and things were not as sophisticated and there were, you know, you couldn't even call it a record industry at the time. It was more of a cottage industry. And you didn't have 
the ability to just distribute things nationwide very quickly like you can today. You really had to go radio station to radio station to, to get records played on the air and then people in that area might go to their store and request that record. So this company wasn't quite sure what to do with this gentleman because he had all these different styles. So one of the things that they came up with was the idea of using different pseudonyms uh, for his name, which served a number of purposes. One, they could make it look like they actually had two or three artists for the price of one on their roster. It looked that way when you'd look at the song selections and the topics. Two, they could uh, license some of this music to other companies, which is something they did back then. And it would look like, hey, we have a gospel singer doing these songs, we have a blues singer doing these songs. Um, and then the third thing they did was they came up with a contest to see if they could sell more records using mystery. So they gave this uh, uh, gentleman the tagline masked marvel and put it on his records his first the, one of his first records and said uh you know and then had these flyers the record store saying if you can guess who the masked marvel is we'll send you free records and that ended up normally if they sold oh five thousand records that was a big deal back then this was like 1929. wow but, but great marketing idea yeah, but this ended up they sell they sold fifteen thousand, and so it was really interesting how I, I was interested not just in this gentleman who I not revealed his name because it's a mystery and you'll read it in the book, but I was fascinated by how they used early pseudonyms, you know, long before Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or or other pseudonyms that we hear about today. And of course, all the Nelson Wilbury and the Traveling Wilburys all use them as well. But this went back to the late 1920s. And then I talk about how the uh, Great Depression of 1929 hit just as his career was launching and how it affected both him and the record company at the time and how they dealt with that. Would he have likely have crossed paths with Robert Johnson? Uh, it's quite possible. Yeah, I think it's quite possible. I know that's such well-trodden territory, the, yeah. uh, the crossroads and so forth. But these stories right. of, of Robert Johnson uh, being an incredibly average guitarist and hanging around Sun House and Sun was kind of annoyed by him. And, and then, you know, like <laughs> a year later, Sun, uh, Robert Johnson returns as this gar uh, guitar virtuoso. Uh, yeah. separate the wheat from the chaff there. We've got about five minutes before the break here, but I mean, wh where is the truth and where is the legend there, do you think? Well, the legend is that he met the devil at the crossroads and that and he traded uh, with the devil and the devil said, you know, I'll give you these great talents as a guitarist if you, uh, you know, in turn, give me your soul. And he became this great guitarist he came back home. Everybody was amazed. And and then later he was poisoned and died about a year or two later. I don't particularly believe that he met the devil at the crossroads. There's no old scratch. Uh, what's that? There's no old scratch, as they called him, the devil. I don't think so. I don't think so. 
you know, I think that what happened was when he went away, something caused him to practice more, you know, or he did a lot of uh, one night stands. And over time, he got better at what he did. He may have run into other musicians who taught him a lick here, a lick there. So, um, you know, I, I think it makes for a great tale. And in fact, um, I used that analogy um, in one of my chapters in this book, Music, Mysteries in the Music Case Closed, uh, Deal with the Devil. Did the Beach Boys steal a song from Charles Manson, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a while. We'll definitely get into that in, in hour two. Well, my understanding also is that, you know, Johnson sort of, you know, he was very coy about it. Again, some great marketing there. He didn't deny it. Right. I'm wondering if the, uh, the, uh, the masked Marvel and whether that might have been the inspiration for um, uh, the masked Elvis, Orion, which was uh, later revealed to be, uh, was Jimmy Ellis, I guess. Well, I, I don't know about that one in particular, but I found that when I did some more research on that, I found that within about, oh, a year of the Masked Marvel contest, and that was a big deal that, that went, you know, around the country, really, with these flyers and things and got people involved that there were now wrestlers started to appear. I saw classified ads of wrestlers calling themselves the Masked Marvel. There was then a uh, TV, not a TV, but a serial series that I think was shown in movie theaters, like little shorts. Each time you go to the theater, you'd see another chapter. And that was the Masked Marvel. And then there was also a comic book series called the Masked Marvel. And in each case, the mask looked very similar to the one that they uh, put onto this contest, Paramount Records, for this artist, but where they put a mask over his eyes. Uh, it was very similar to the Lone Ranger mask, if people are familiar with that. It may have all started with the, uh, the masked Marvel. It's quite possible. All right, that does it for part one. Jim Birkenstadt, the rock and roll detective, will stay with us for part two of Rock and Roll Mysteries coming up on Wednesday. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.